It's my favorite plague. We know plagues are bad, but this is the name of the podcast. It's my favorite plague. And I'm Jeffrey Todd Knuckles, and welcome to My Favorite Plague. Doing our part in this most recent plague, we bravely stayed home and watched television. Discovering a fascination with plagues, we also kept discussing what our behaviors during a plague said about us and our society. We thought you might enjoy this conversation as well, so every episode, we pick a plague and each present our favorite thing about that plague. After presenting our favorite thing, we discuss what we think it all means. We have created uh, discussion boards on our website, myfavoriteplague.com, so we can hear your opinions and ideas. Too soon? We don't think so. Probably too late, if you ask us. What plague is this? Hi, this is Mike, and I'm going to tell you all about smallpox. The smallpox was always present, filling the churchyards with corpses, tormenting with constant fears all whom it had stricken, leaving on those whose lives it spared the hideous traces of its power, turning the babe into a changeling at which its mother shuddered, and making the eyes and cheeks of the big-hearted maiden objects of horror to the lover. That quote from T.B. Macaulay captures the power smallpox had over every community it touched. Evidence of smallpox has been found in Egyptian mummies, and idol worship in many ancient communities indicate it was a constant and fearful presence. The disease is characterized by fever and rash, which develops into foul-smelling pustules, it can cause permanent scarring as well as blindness and proved fatal to three out of ten of its victims. The good news is that in the early 1970s, the World Health Organization's smallpox eradication program ended smallpox as a naturally occurring plague. This triumphant success was described as a multi-level international and indigenous effort that was responsive to often complex local conditions. Smallpox does, hopefully, only exist in labs, and this ended thousands of years of struggle against a deadly plague. Now, it's time for Elise and Todd to share their favorite things about smallpox. And now it's time for Elise. My favorite thing about smallpox is variolation. Variolation? Are you wondering what variolation is, I am, Dad? Uh, yeah, I am, and it's a nice word. It sounds nice. It flows. You could use it as a chant. Variolation. <clears throat> variolation is, like the, flower. is the deliberate inoculation of an uninfected person with the smallpox virus, usually obtained by someone with a lighter case of smallpox. 
This is the way people found to protect themselves against smallpox for hundreds of years. And this was long before the vaccine. And actually, the efforts that people made towards variolation created the word vaccine that we now use to as protection for all variety of diseases. There's a lot of evidence, though, that it started in either Europe, Africa, Asia, or the Ottoman Empire, whatever version of the Ottoman Empire was going on when it first started. So one of those three places. One of those, yeah, four places. <clears throat> Although um, Europe, the really only uh, evidence for it being there any very early was in Wales, and that was the 1600s. Most of the practice in Europe came from other places. So it was a sort of another gift of the European colonialism is that they were taught how to do variolation from the places that they were colonizing. So most places used pinpricks and they did them in a particular pattern and it was regional, how, what the pattern was like. There was also regional kind of variation in what they would actually do. In Scotland, they had something called and this sounds delightful, a pocky thread. Aye. And it was a smallpox contaminated piece of wool that was wrapped around a child's wrist. In some places, people would put smallpox scabs in the hand of a child. But the idea was to protect children from getting a serious case of smallpox. And there has to be a lot of fear that you're going to lose your child to smallpox if you're willing to wrap a pocky thread around your child's wrist. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so in the 15th century, there's uh, art and written evidence that the Chinese used variolation by taking, and this is, this is exciting, by taking the scabs off of a mildly infecting, infected person, drying them out and blowing the scabs dried out scabs into the nose of an uninfected person. And we've included um, a piece of art that sort of shows the method that this was done. It was called encephalation. Okay. Um, was that, was it done with kind of like a straw thing or did you just. It looks to me in the picture and I'm sure that there was regional variation in that, but in the picture, it looks like a really long, thin clarinet. Okay. All right. So it's some kind of instrument. They didn't just spit it out of their mouth no it was a long thin gave the person a lot of distance and they blew it up the nose like snuff mr snuffleupagus yeah um but the again there's a lot of evidence that um this happened a lot sooner and it was largely practiced by nuns and monks and so they said that the nuns and monks didn't write down the procedure or write document that they were doing it because it was sacred or it was protected by sort of secret rituals. So only nuns and monks could do it. So that is part of the reason that there's no written evidence prior to <clears throat> the kind of people from other places coming there and observing it and noticing it. Hmm. Then there's the argument for India. Uh, they very clearly used needle inoculation, not the encephalation. And it was noted in the 18th century. But again, there is theories and some evidence, although some of it is disputed, that they used that needle vari variolation for thousands of years. Hmm. It's very possible. 
Um, again, it's just really hard to document. Um, in the Af in Africa and in the Middle East, doctors started putting a cloth over the arm of an infected child and soaking up all the good pus, and then <laughs> and. Then, <laughs> Soaking up all that good pus. Yeah. And then they would put the cloth on the arm of a healthy child. And essentially the child, the hope was that the child would get a minor case of smallpox. And it's very true that some people did not just develop a minor case, especially children of smallpox. Some people died, but they died in far fewer numbers than if they didn't do anything at all. So um, eventually what the process became is that you would rub scabs or fluid from pustules into superficial scratches of the skin of the uninfected. And um, there's a hero in the story for bringing it to Europe. And I say that with a little bit of trepidation, because like I said, everything goes back to colonialism, I guess. The Europeans were taught how to use variolation by countries they were largely trying to colonize. So that's awful, but that experience saved a lot of people. Um, so the big hero of this story is for European variolation is Lady Mary Wortley Montague. And she was... Sounds like a Muppet name. Yeah, it does kind of, mm. except she was a total badass. She was fantastic. There's a book about her. It's called The Pioneering Life of Mary Wortley Montague, Scientist and Feminist. And it is no joke. It is not revisionist history. This lady did what she wanted, how she wanted, when she wanted. Um, she was educated when she was very young, but to a bunch of misfortune. She was left in the care of her father, who thought education was wasted on the ladies. So she snuck into the library and stayed up late at night teaching herself uh, everything she could, reading books, taught herself Latin. By the time she was 15 or 16, she'd written several books. She was great as far as she did stuff on her own that women weren't allowed to do in general, even women who were educated. Um, when her dad put up obstacles for her to marry the man she was in love with, she just eloped. And she was high society. She was... You know, her reputation mattered at that time, but she didn't care. She eloped and not before negotiating the exact details of her fiance's financial status to ensure that she wouldn't be poor. She got down to brass tacks with him and made him write down his financial status. And for that, I think that's pretty cool. Um, but for the good news for everyone else is that her husband got placed in an ambassador position in Constantinople. And she went out with him. Now, Lady Mary had had smallpox and unfortunately her brother had died of smallpox. So she knew very much what the dangers of smallpox were. And so she realized and observed that older women were the practicers of variolation. And she observed what they did, how they did it, and saw the success results. So while she was in Turkey, she had her son inoculated, and then she took this knowledge back to England and then had her daughter inoculated. But because she was so cool and so high society, she shared this with the royal family, and the royal family started getting inoculated. And once the royal family does it, 
Everybody does it. So. <laughs> well, it's true. No, I, I just, I don't, I'm not going to ask where that came from. But anyways. Right <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I think that she saved thousands of lives by bringing this. But in addition, she just had an amazing life. And she's one of the things that. Todd and I periodically come across things that aren't favorite things about the plague, but are just favorite things. I love her. So please look into Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Uh, it's also worth noting that a slave named Juanissimus, who was the slave of Cotton Mather, um, brought variolation to the United States. He has since been recognized and celebrated in the city of Boston, where he lived for saving most of America from smallpox. And during the Revolutionary War, um, George Washington, who had smallpox when he was young, had his troops inoculated, and John Adams didn't. And the result was that George Washington continued fighting during a smallpox epidemic, and John Adams had to retreat from Quebec and run away because his troops were being felled by smallpox. And this wasn't affecting the British troops because they either had had variolation or had had smallpox before. So just think, if only John Adams would have had those troops inoculated, Quebec would be part of the United States of America. Mm. Do you think that's exciting to the people from Quebec? I, I think they're pretty, they're okay where they are. <laughs> they're saving lots of money on health care. Yes, I think that they are probably saving a lot of money on health care, regardless of how that went. They're happy now. Yeah. So I think that it's amazing that individual people can make such a huge difference in certain areas, but it's also clear that this was practiced for a really long time just by people who were using their brains and observation and figured stuff out. I think it's really Cool. And again, you know, when you're a child of a sort of colonizer society, you get taught that society's history. And the more we do this podcast, the more I realize there are huge, huge gaps in my education. So may I ask you a question? You may. <clears throat> Lady Montague. Uh, she was a lady. She was. She uh, snuck into the library. I don't think she snuck into the local public library. Did she? Oh, so um, it's it's kind of confusing, actually, because it's clear that at one point where she was living, they had an amazing library. And it was a personal private library, as I think most libraries were at that particular point. But then at another point, there's documentation that where she was living later on, she was really disappointed and upset because the library was crap. So at some formative pivot, and I haven't completely read the book, so I don't have all that information, but it's clear that at some formative point in her life, she lived in a house that had a superb library. Right. So that's what I'm wondering. I mean, she was... A woman, but she was also clearly part of the aristocracy. Um, I mean, or her father was. If oh, you she ever... was very definitely. Yeah. So I just wonder what what I'm, my question is: Do you know what her family did? 
were they just wealthy landowners? Were they, you know, what what did they do to become? Well, you know, I knew that at one point, but I've since forgotten it. So okay. um, I can include that in the notes. But if you read the book, it's in there. I just can't remember. But her dad was not very interested in her. Yeah. And he... Um, well, she toddled off to the library and made something of herself. So yeah. Good. Yeah, right. she did. That's good. I was just curious. Okay. What are, what are, sorry. What, sorry. What did her family do to get... You know, because, you know, most people back then didn't have their own personal libraries oh no she was definitely of the the people the besmudged point. with charcoal right and whatnot no she was not from a working family this was a family of the aristocracy and i think um at that point i could be wrong but i think at that point it was still considered kind of you'd turn your nose up at someone who had to work like you like you wouldn't I mean, I'm sure everyone's fortune came from somewhere, but they like to pretend that they were men of leisure all the time. Right. Sure. Yeah. Wear so. those cool straw hats. Cool straw hats, right. Boaters. Cricket. Yeah. Yes. Hunt. Things like that. Right. But instead, she decided to... Badminton. <laughs> instead, she decided to save thousands and thousands of lives with smallpox instead of playing badminton mm. and eating sandwiches. Right. And getting married to some, um, you know, dude named some du- Nigel. Some dude. Well, I don't remember what her husband's first name was. It could have been Nigel. All right. Okay. Any other questions? No, that's good. I just wondered where, uh, you know, the clear. I just, I just wanted to clear that up. Okay. All right. And now it's time for Todd. Smallpox was eradicated as a naturally occurring infection, a naturally occurring disease in 1979, 1980. That's kind of when they announced it. It was probably a little bit before that. Okay. One of the things I thought about while doing this was if someone said, Todd, I need you to uh, tackle an issue that's worldwide uh, using the available technology of the 1950s. So they did all of this with, um, you know, trains, planes, and automobiles, and analog phones, and the post, the postal service of several different uh, nations. And so all of this, you have to think about, all of this was done on paper. So no computers, There's- no fax machines. There's no, no digital satellite phones. No satellite phones. There's no digital anything. Everything was paper. You went to a small village. You inoculated people. You took data and statistics, and you sent that through the post back to Geneva. That just kind of blew my mind. So that sounds awful. The administration of it sounds awful. I mean, you th- just think about you know uh, an office environment full of ink and paper and big old file cabinets. You know all of it. So anyway. Uh, so one of the reasons this was possible that they could do this was the technology that uh, was created at the time to make it happen. And so part of the miracle of the end of smallpox was that an international team went into the worst areas of smallpox infection first before trying to eliminate it anywhere else. And it was a miracle. The project meant dealing with all the challenges of low income, poor communication and transportation and government bureaucracy that were endemic problems in the areas hardest hit by smallpox. 
So any solution was going to have to deliver a lot of vaccines as quickly as possible. In order to make this happen, the first thing innovation, the first innovation, the first thing that kind of uh, that I was kind of uh, fascinated by was a thing called the Pedojet injector. This was a gun-like machine that inserted the vaccine under the skin subcutaneously. I do believe is the word. Yep. And it was painless. Uh, so vaccinees were like, "Cool, I like this." An inventor named Aaron Ismock was asked to adapt the gun for more efficiency and wider use. So he developed a nozzle, and this nozzle allowed the vaccine to be fed into a gun from a vial that held 500 doses. And this made it uh, far faster and easier to use. And then uh, a foot pedal was, was invented that was attached to the injector that allowed it them to vaccinate about 1,000 people per hour. And that meant no electricity uh, was needed. So you could go to some village out in the middle of nowhere and you would have your hydraulic uh, uh, pedo jet gun and it would, um, you know, inoculate people. Were they freaked out that they were being shot with a gun? Apparently they, they, they preferred the, the gun to a giant needle. Oh. Uh, so that would, and I guess you saw someone just go up and they would go, you know. And uh, and if you look at the Pedojet, the interesting, if you look at the Pedojet, it's like a 1950s version of the future. And if you go online and just put into Google Images uh, Star Trek 1960s phaser and then find an image of the Pedojet, they uh, are identical or, or are very, very similar. They and, really uh, are. I saw it. And I'm going to put that picture somewhere on the website. I don't know where because I feel like. So the Pedojet came before phasers, I think. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I feel like they had to see that image and it lodged somewhere in Gene Roddenberry's head because you said it's shocking right. how it's, much they look alike. They look, yeah. So, anyways, you have to put yourself in the position to fully realize how great this was. It's possible you would only have one shot to vaccinate some of these people. The work you put into travel to remote and difficult areas, not to mention the apprehension people have about the vaccine, you absolutely have to make the most of whatever opportunity you have. The Pedojet was a tremendous improvement that saved lives. The problem with it was it cost $600, and that's $600, like 1950s, 60s dollars. So adjusted for inflation, I don't know, what, 2000 3000 I don't know, a lot more. Uh, and required a specially trained technician to operate it. So uh, it broke down a lot. So everywhere you went, you had to take your team of people and a technician who could repair it and one or two pedo jets. That's a lot when you consider how remote some of those places were. So they had a backup jet. They had a mm. they had a guy that fixed the jet. So and then a six hundred dollar gun. So you know. Yeah. So then in 1967, what D.A. Henderson, who was the director of the 10-year international effort to end smallpox, uh, who was, uh, in, is an amazing guy, he calls the invention of the bifurcated needle the ultimate vaccine solution. The bifurcated needle was invented by a Wyeth Laboratory employee named, named Dr. Benjamin Rubin. It's a needle that is uh, about five centimeters long or two inches long, with a pronged uh, kind of fork at the end 
It's a described kind of looks like uh, something out of like a silverware set that you would get for needles or something. I mean, um, olives. Excuse me. It looks like an olive fork. You know, <laughs> it does. It looks like a little olive. Could fork. you use it as an olive fork? I, yes. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and say yes. <laughs> That's probably what they're used for now. The fork uh, prevents the needle from pre- penetrating the skin too deeply and makes it easy to accurately administer the vaccine. The needles could also be boiled and repeatedly reused and cost about $5 for a 1000 So $5, a 1000 needles, $600 for one gun that breaks down a lot. And they could reuse them? Uh, and you could reuse it. You could boil it and, and reuse it, right? Repeatedly, you would boil it and reuse it. And it also... Uh, you it made it so you could use the vaccine so instead of getting 25 vaccines from one vial you could get 100 vaccines from one vial so there's just no contest you know. oh because it was so much more efficient at drawing the vaccine out of the vial yeah that's oh right. yeah. uh so this yeah, i mean the petterjet was great for its time but yep yeah times change so this changed the whole game and vaccine became cheaper easier to administer and did not require specially trained technicians and this innovation changed, uh, saved countless lives. And these two guys, that's one of the things that really, that's another thing that made me think. This uh, Dr. Aaron Ismock and Dr. Benjamin Rubin made inventions that changed the world and saved thousands, countless people's lives, millions of yeah, people's I think lives. Million, I think it's fair to say millions. Millions it has of to be. people's lives and because of their, you know, of their innovation. And they are... Truly unsung people, you know, just uh, like Lady Montague. This is someone that people should, you know, I, I would hope. Right. I guess there's a lot of people to know, but that seems like someone that would be a good person to know. This guy invented this. That's amazing. That's more important than Little Wayne. So I was right. I was going to say it really frustrates me that I know more about the Kardashians than I know about these people, yeah. and I should know more about these people. Well, maybe that's why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> yes. So when I think about my favorite things, this is like, you know, it's a fantasy. You have a team, a budget, and then a plan, you know, like a heist movie. Um, But it's 1960s technology. And instead of computers, you have the mail system and landlines. And vaccines are not only uh, are, are not the only part of the solution. They had to get good intel on the regions that were experiencing outbreaks and figure out how to contain it. They dealt with overwhelming odds in some of the difficult areas of the world. These were smart, dedicated people. They got together and saved the world from this horrible affliction. And uh, they saved the most vulnerable people first. And that really kind of sticks with me. Not the richest or the most famous or privileged people. They saved the least privileged people first. They created inventions that made everything better and changed history. The thing about this smallpox episode is that there were so many favorite things to choose from, which is unlike every other plague we have researched, every other plague, the other two that we have done. Uh, But it comes with a little bit of sadness because I really don't know if this project could succeed again. Not not to sound too uh, dramatical, but I don't know. You know, I mean, world cooperation and trust in science and Innovation without concern about profitability. I just don't know. Uh, I digress. Let's appreciate this amazing achievement uh, of the team that ended the smallpox. And uh, 
you know, the great uh, D.A. Henderson, Aaron Ismock, and Dr. Benjamin Rubin. Uh, Yay, pretty and amazing. Lady Montague. And Lady Montague, the, the really amazing people that, that And Onesimus. Onesimus. Yeah. And, and countless others that did amazing things way more important than uh, the Kardashians. Yeah. Sorry, folks. But we did tell you that like this that. episode would be more upbeat than the last one. And I think we delivered. We did it. We did it. That's yes. right. Woo! Woo! Success! Science! And I do have to apologize for the dog repeatedly sneezing during this, but, you know, that's going to happen. That's a dog. Yep. All right. Well, thank you very much. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? What does it all mean now? What does it all mean? What does it all mean? What does it all mean now? And so what does it all mean? Just over this last week or so, you know, doing my research, I never really knew. I think that had you asked me beforehand, had you said, hey, Todd, did you know that they eradicated this? You know, I think I've heard that somewhere. It was something I never had to worry about, but I'm pretty sure I knew that some diseases had been eradicated, or at least one or two of them had been eradicated. I knew that. Yeah, I thought polio. I thought vaccine kind of took care of some things and that it was gone. I did not know the 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 volume uh, uh, and how important what they did was until I until I had lived through it and did this. If I had done something like this and participated in this beforehand, I still don't think I would have been as impressed. But that's pretty impressive. Uh, impressive doesn't even. That's the whole thing. Is the words that I've come up with oppressive, astonishing, uh, wonderful? Just don't cut it. None of the words cut how what they did. How amazing it was, and and the the technology that they used to do it with none of it cuts it. It's it's it blows your mind. Well, and I think in addition to all of that, it just sounds like a logistical nightmare. You've got, you know, from what I read, some of the governments and some of the hardest hit places were quite difficult to work with, and communication, getting the vaccine, the changes in technology, all of it. Just the idea that they decided we're going to go to the hardest hit areas first and that they kept it organized, they kept it together, and they did it. They did it. And and that's another thing, you know, that kind of that. So, I mean, you know, hand in hand with really zero corporate sponsorship. You didn't have, you know, we didn't, they didn't depend on the largesse of, I don't know who the richest person in the world was back then. Howard Hughes or or Walt Disney or someone back then that was equivalent to Bill Gates. They didn't. We didn't have to depend on the largesse of these super rich people. There was no zero corporate. Uh, the free market really didn't have anything to do with it. So, you know, great things uh, can be done that aren't necessarily one hundred percent about the, the the financial incentive, which is not the narrative that we are told today uh, i know that i sound you know whatever you can call me a big bohemian <laughs> <laughs> you big bohemian you bohemian greenwich village freak well i also wonder <clears throat> if what it all means is that things are better they function better plans function better projects like this function better when there is a higher purpose rather than a financial purpose rather than a government purpose where 
there are people who really it's it sounds stupid to say because we live in such a cynical age it is hard to get my mind to the place where we are all coming together as a team and we're going to do this thing that will save lives and it'll be great but it's going to be tedious and difficult and frustrating but we're going to do it for the benefit of humanity. Nothing but the benefit of humanity. They're not going to become famous. They're not going to become one of Time Magazine's People of the Year or the CNN Heroes or the... None of that. that I guess that's the other thing. It's not just the profit motive, but that we live in a time where if if someone does something even vaguely nice and someone films it, and it gets on YouTube or Insta, then they're a hero and they get to go on a talk show. And then, I don't know, they promote some energy drink or something. Yeah, I don't know. Right. You know what it is. But right. these are people who even after they did one of the single most amazing human accomplishments ever, you don't know their names. You know, uh, Todd told me the names in the podcast and I've already forgotten them. And I'm going to try not to do that, but certainly the names of these people are not something that are on the lips of everyone and everyone. If they came up as a question in who wants to be a millionaire, I think most people wouldn't get it. And that is also the part of what has changed about our culture now is expecting your achievements to be reflected back at you. And there's this recognition by everyone and you get some kind of, if not financial reward, some kind of social reward for it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there are some cynics that say that everything you do is for yourself. Well, you're just, you know, pulling over on the side of the road to help that guy with a flat tire just because it makes you feel better. But I don't think that is the case here. And so... What does it all mean is that altruism is a real thing. Right. People can do things thing. for the good of others because they believe in it. And the idea that money or fame, even YouTube fame, um, are going to be the things that motivate people to do good, I don't think that's accurate. Because then you are doing it for that other end goal. And when money and fame or recognition aren't on the table, then you're doing it because it's right. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or famous or, um, I don't know, have your name on t-shirts. You don't care. You're doing it because it's the right thing. And I really wonder how much of that still exists in our current society. But I believe... I believe it's possible yeah, to get back I there. I think it's out there. I mean, I think it's out there. But yeah. anyways, anyways, that's that's what it all means for me, folks. Yeah, me too. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to My Favorite Play. We'd especially like to thank Mike for his lovely explanation of the smallpox virus. We encourage you to go to myfavoriteplague.com, become a member, and get lots of exciting extras. 
You can also get the opportunity to suggest future episodes. Next week, we'll be doing cholera, and that is by special request. Thank you, and have a lovely and plague-free day. Thank you.